thank you for tuning in to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast, brought to you by a student-staff partnership at the University of Westminster. This is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host Kyra, and for this episode I'll be joined by Yathnau, originally from Skidigit Haidegwai, as she speaks to her experiences as a woman who holds the identities of Indigenous, queer and transgender, whilst encompassing the epistemologies, ontologies and axiology that accompany her intersecting identities. Yathnau delves into navigating Indigenous identity while being submersed in colonial social systems and revitalising her Indigenous language as a second language learner and how it has influenced her master's thesis research. Yathnau offers possible avenues for communities to utilise in the deconstructing processes of oppressive and colonising frameworks and systems. Before we begin, I want to clarify that this episode will discuss the colonisation in the context of Indigenous communities and their experiences of coloniality. You'll find that the definition of decolonisation in the UK is very different to that of decolonisation in settler colonies like the land we call Canada. And when we talk about decolonising the curriculum, epistemologies and our minds, Indigenous researchers and academics consider this to be practices of indigenization. For them, decolonization is about the repatriation, or as Yathnau calls it, rematriation of indigenous land and life. And as Yathnau finds herself located in British Columbia, in the lands we call Canada, and situated in the Skidigit Haidegwai community, it was appropriate to use the version of decolonization that she has come to study and advocate for. Hi, now thank you so much for being on this episode of the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast. I've been really looking forward to having this conversation with you and you're actually our first external guest, so it's even more special. Yes, well, first of all, however, for having me, grateful to be here. I wanted to begin with talking about your background, as I'm sure you can agree it has had a strong influence on your research and passions. So first, how would you describe your experience of growing up in Skidigit Haidegwai, which is in the settler colony Canada? And did you find yourself having to negotiate or even navigate your Indigenous identity? There was certainly a lot of difficult navigation, as with any Indigenous child being raised in colonial educational and social systems. I believe that the biggest thing I had to navigate when I was younger was that I was Indigenous, but my complexion was very white. Thus, I often escaped the racism that is accompanied with being Indigenous, especially in the late 1990s, early 2000s. I mean, the last residential school on the land we now call Canada closed in 1996, and that was the year that I was born, 1996. I was often at a very young age confronted with racial and anti-Indigenous remarks from, for example, white settler children on the playground, which were directed at Indigenous children, visibly Indigenous children, children of colour on the playground. And I was often put in the situation of whether I stay quiet and keep myself safe, or if I speak up, oh, myself and risk my own safety in those situations. And of course, this is a very privileged way of thinking and being not facing the discrimination head on because I I looked a certain way. 
I, as I became older and I began embracing my intersecting identities as an indigenous, queer, pansexual, transgender woman, I began to see how these systems of oppression, colonialism, the patriarchy, how they worked together to oppress people and communities who stray from what colonial and patriarchal powers deem as right, which is white, straight, and cisgender. Thank you for sharing. And I feel like, you know, it's obvious for me to say that your upbringing has had a great influence on your choice of masters and the focus of your research at the moment, which is Skidigit, Heidegger language, revitalization through storytelling, whilst incorporating queer theory. So what does language revitalization entail and how have you come to understand it through queer theory? So growing up, my nanai, my grandmother, uh, her name is Awiwet, would sometimes tell me our traditional Haida stories and teach me pieces of our Skidigit Haida language. However, as a young and easily influenced child raised in a colonial educational system, I did not see the critical importance of these knowledges and wisdoms. I thought, these will be available to me later, which was not the case at all. In 2014, I began to audio record our, our Haida stories from my nanai. These stories are not just stories, they are our history, our future, and depict a way of life which has been battling eradication since colonial contact. Nanai and I then applied for the Mentor Apprentice Program, which is a funded language revitalization program through First Peoples Cultural Council in BC, and we were accepted. And since that time, my Nanai and I have been working on our many, many <laughs> hours of language immersion, primarily focusing on stories. And it was through these stories that I was able to begin learning my language later on in life. And it was like, as I was learning these stories, I began to see how these stories were essentially tools for learning my language as a second language learner. And stories provide a fluid way of learning one's language. Instead of sitting down, for example, in my grade 11 high school French class, and we were learned, okay, well, in, in, in French, dog is this. And that's how we learned it as a translation of English. And it was very much so, okay, today we're going to learn about animals. Tomorrow we're going to learn about furniture. But when you're learning through stories, the stories give you what you need to learn in a fashion that you touch on so many different topics in one story. You could talk about animals to family names, to travel, to ocean, to sea creatures. And it very much so mimics how babies learn a language, which is how language takes place through seeing, observing, and taking what the universe gives to you in those moments. And through this learning, I have come to know how important, precious, and endangered our language is in multiple respects. These epistemological processes led to the creation of new knowledges and therefore the what, language learning, and the how, grounded in high to social relations of knowledge production of these valuable knowledges and myself possessing my intersecting identity situated within. In regard to queer theory, this came in because 
I always say, and I say this all the time, that I am my work because my work would not exist without me. Therefore, holding myself as central in my work is crucial and what makes my work my work. I didn't just wake up one day as an academic and decide that I wanted to study Skidigat Haida language revitalization. It was the experiences and the relationships embedded within those experiences, myself and my intersecting identities embedded in these relationships and in these experiences that shaped what I brought to the table of my life, my work, and my future relationships. Therefore, studying it or looking through this, these epistemological and methodological processes in regard to queer theory is simply by situating myself in the body of queer knowledges that come with it into this work and essentially demanding that the colonial institutions seize these Indigenous knowledges and these queer knowledges as valuable, important, useful, and possessing the possibility of eliciting meaningful change in, for example, the colonial institution for young queer Indigenous people who come after me, who are going to continue in this, this war to have our knowledges validated. What a topic. And I really appreciate how close you are to this um, subject. And I think it's often forgotten how much a language, like you said, keeps the kind of cultural and historical past of communities alive and offers like a foundation to a people's like sense of belonging and identity and yeah I agree I think it's so much more than just a dialect but overall I'm looking forward to seeing your work in this area flourish and hopefully I can get a chance to read it sometime. On that topic I actually read an article recently that talked about storytelling as a form of resistance and it also said that it was quote decolonization theory in its most natural form. So my question for you is what is it specifically about sharing stories in Indigenous epistemology specifically that make them an effective method of decolonizing or indigenization? Yes. Yes, so there's a lot of work um, situated on the land we now call Canada that revolves around Indigenous research methodologies, epistemology, ontology, axiology as avenues of resistance. And in my thesis itself, I talk about how this research and Indigenous research overall is resistance. I, I entered this work three years ago with assumptions on I will be able to do all of these amazing things and, and be able to embed these different knowledges that I have gathered within. And of course, that was not the case at all. I faced many, many roadblocks, many barriers, and I have essentially been at war for these knowledges and these theses and, and this research to be validated within the colonial institution. Now, here's the thing. I hate the word validation because it's almost like a higher power, in this case, colonial powers, saying that, okay, your work is real, your knowledges are real, your identity is real, there you go. But I've not seen validation in that sense. Validation in this respect simply implies that systems of oppression, which force these diverse forms of knowledge out of the institution, therefore the people who possess these various and diverse forms of knowledge out of the institution, be deconstructed in a collaborative and communal way so that these knowledges can be embedded in their rightful places and be used to address real life, social and, and equitable problems that we are facing within institutions, within communities and within our own, within our own personal home lives. 
And, and what was the second half of the other question or this question? How does sharing stories, how does that make them an effective method of decolonizing or indigenizing? Yes, yeah, so sharing stories, it, it helps us understand where, where we come from. And a few years ago in, in, this, in the Skidigat Haida Immersion Program in our language house in my home community of Skidigat, we were trying to figure out a word that was lost as we were creating our dictionary. And when a word is lost, so many pieces of cultural knowledge are lost with it. And we began chatting in pairs, chatting in groups, and then we heard stories being told, personal stories of where this word could have come up, cultural stories, spiritual stories of where this word could have come up. And you could tell that story was a, a default method for my community for figuring out something that we could not figure out in that moment. It was something that we jumped to because we know our stories possess so many components of, of who we are, where we come from, and therefore can often depict where we hope to go. And then there was an uproar. As, as the word was said and everyone began chanting the word over and over and over again, a word that we thought was lost was found. It was brought back to life because we defaulted to stories. And that's when my uncle Roy, um, my nanai's older brother, who unfortunately passed away last year around this time in 2020, he said, when you put a group of people in a room for the same purpose, goal, and outcome, something beautiful is going to happen. And something beautiful did happen. We came together as a community and used one of the most important forms of knowledge and knowledge telling and sharing and transmission, which was storytelling, to figure out something that could have been detrimental to our worldview if it, if it had actually been lost what wise words and I'm so happy that you ended up finding that word what a feeling it must have been and in some of your previous work you've also spoken about psychology as a colonial discipline and how quote it cannot be decolonized because it wasn't colonized in the first place i found this statement really interesting especially being a student from another social science so i wanted to get into kind of speaking about this a little bit more um first what were the specific elements of psychology that made you kind of come to this conclusion so I have spent a lot of time thinking and telling people that, well, psychology is a colonized discipline. It is. It came over with the colonizers and it was used as a tool of destruction to destroy ways of being and ways of knowing within Indigenous communities situated on the land we now call Canada. And growing up, I, I lived off grid for a while with my family. Um, in, in just outside of a rural indigenous community. And I often saw the, the negative impacts of languishing healthcare, languishing mental health, addiction, 
um, not being accepted by one's family in regard to being queer. And I saw all of this happening at a young age in this community that I was very close with. And I spent most of the time thinking, well, how can I help? What, what can I do about this? And of course, being eight or nine at the time, of course, there wasn't much I could do. But as I grew and as I entered post-secondary education, the institution told me, well, psychology can help your people. Psychology is an avenue to work and address mental health issues in rural Indigenous communities. And I thought, okay, well, psychology is, is what I need to do. So I, I took myself and I dove into the realm of psychology in my undergrad, making my um, major in my undergraduate studies of psychology and my minor in Indigenous studies to kind of hope that these two areas of study for myself could hold hands in regard to the work that I wanted to do, which was aspects such as addressing languishing mental health in Indigenous communities. And as mentioned, psychology is a colonized discipline. And the more I dug into it, the more I thought to myself, how can I decolonize something that was never not colonized? Psychology was always colonized. So if I undergo this process of decolonizing psychology to work within these indigenous communities, it's not going to be psychology anymore. It's going to be something else because I'm trying to decolonize something that was never not colonized in the first place. So what would it be? And then that made me think about how I would, by using psychology to address the areas of study that I wanted to address, that I would be using a colonial tool, which was used to hurt and oppress our communities, to now try to work within healing frameworks with our communities. And that felt wrong. It felt like that wasn't the proper and effective way to go, because I was trying to use a tool of destruction as a tool to aid in healing frameworks. And that was when I began to learn that Indigenous studies need to be held at the forefront and that I needed to focus on Indigenous ways of knowing and being and healing and resilience and empowerment and delving into those knowledge realms to work within our own communities. And it was difficult for me to, to come to terms with that, that I have been doing things the wrong way for so long in my mind. And I'm not saying that psychology is a not needed discipline. It's an important discipline and does a lot of important work, but it was not going to help me get to where I wanted to go within working within our indigenous communities. There are, there's actually quite a bit of research now that showed that communities who have low levels of cultural revitalization and language learning have higher rates of youth suicide, whereas communities that have high levels of cultural revitalization and high levels of language learning have much lower rates of youth suicide. And that brings me back to using cultural revitalization, language revitalization, story revitalization as tools at the forefront of addressing aspects such as languishing mental health, due to colonial powers within our Indigenous communities. Thank you. It almost sounds like it kind of, it all was supposed to happen in this way and kind of go in this kind of full circle. 
Um, thinking about kind of worldviews and different contexts, I feel like we should talk about how the conversation about decolonizing in the UK is very different to the conversations being had about decolonization in settler colonies like Canada. You'll find that when we talk about decolonizing the curriculum, epistemologies and our relationships, indigenous researchers and academics might consider those to be practices of what you call indigenization. So how would you best explain the key difference between decolonization and indigenization? Well, this is definitely a, a difficult question. And I believe that the, the frameworks are, the frameworks of oppressing systems such as colonialism and the patriarchy definitely hold hands across cultures, nations, communities, and peoples who have been negatively impacted by these systems and frameworks. So the negative impacts of course, going to be different depending on the, the culture at hand, the nation at hand, and, and the traumatic effects of colonization that took place within those different communities, whether it be in regard to land domination, resource domination, or just straight discrimination and racism. These, these effects are going to be different, but the tools are going to be similar. <clears throat> However, Indigenous nations draw upon their own unique realms of knowledges, worldviews to address oppressive systems such as colonialism to elicit avenues of empowerment, resilience, and revitalization. So what I'm saying is the oppressing frameworks hold hands and have a similar aim to eradicate anything that strays from, for example, colonial and patriarchal ways of seeing the world. However, impacted peoples and nations have their own unique bodies of knowledges to draw upon, gifted to them from their ancestors and carry through generations through, for example, coming from the Haida culture, oral teachings presented through our language and learning our language. There is not one single decolonization approach that is going to work for all nations or an indigenization approach that's going to work for all nations who have been impacted by colonialism, for example. Each require their own avenues to address this. However, within, for example, my master's thesis, many of the tools to work within these avenues can be fluid, flexible, and adaptable. So decolonization situated on, on the land we now call Canada, and, and overall, I believe, decolonization revolves around land and the returning of land and life to Indigenous people, peoples. And if you look at a very old dictionary and you look at the word colonization, it's going to tell you that colonization started with the act of taking a plant from one plot of land and planting it and sustaining it on another plot of land in which it was not indigenous to. So colonization revolves around land, the relocation of land and the forcing of activities and things on an area of land in which is not natural to it. Indigenization on the land we now call Canada focuses on it, it focuses on the integration and the building and the reconstruction of embedding indigenous ways of knowing and being into structures such as institutional structures, communal structures, in such a way that we can begin to use these knowledges more widely in spaces in which they were once forced out. 
And again, these knowledges are specific to, for example, my own nation situated on the land we now call Canada and a lot of other coastal indigenous nations on the land we now call Canada. However, those ideologies are going to be different. For example, people in Egypt who suffered a lot of different colonial powers coming in and eliciting trauma and damage in different ways of knowing and being. However, these tools, these ideologies of decolonization and indigenization can be flexible, fluid, and adaptable in such a way that different nations who are suffering the effects of, for example, colonization can use different aspects of these ways of knowing and being to build frameworks or avenues or processes such as empowerment frameworks, revitalization frameworks, and reclamation frameworks to revitalize a culture in a way in ways of knowing and being that had been taken away due to colonial structures. When one's culture is taken away, when one's ways of knowing and being that their ancestors intended to be passed down is taken away, one loses components of their identity. And when you lose components of your identity, who are you? That is the overarching question of identity loss. Who am I? Where do I come from? And if I don't know who I am and where I come from, how am I going to know what I need to do and where I need to be going? How do I know what my ancestors intended me to do if I am missing these crucial pieces of my identity? And this ties back into this body of research that I've been talking about, that nations who don't have a prominent cultural realm to draw upon and who do not have empowerment frameworks, who do not have indigenization frameworks, who do not focus on language revitalization, have high numbers of youth suicide because they do not have their identity. So when we come to think about activism and transformation, I feel like one of the major issues they face today is that there's like a select bunch of people who are aware and concerned by coloniality and higher education, but they're unaware of how they can begin to kind of take action and be actively involved in kind of dismantling these things. I think as a first step, education is definitely crucial, you know, reading the literature, listening to speakers, going to seminars, but I feel like that cognition needs to be met with an outlet. Otherwise it just has this kind of individual function and it doesn't do anything for anyone in the colonized communities that they study, which I think is quite a harmful position to not necessarily be in, but to stay in. And I personally believe that what we learn needs to be met with things that we can do in order for us to kind of transform and actually make change. So my question is, what piece of advice would you give to non-Indigenous academics that want to get into kind of indigenizing their curriculum and teaching? So this ties back into the story I had just told about my uncle Roy and a word that we revived and how when you put people in a place together with the same purposeful outcome, something really beautiful is going to happen. We need everyone in the circle, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, queer, straight, to get to where we want to go, which are avenues such as understanding where people come from through relationship and community building, and therefore the valuable and diverse knowledges, which often stray from what colonial powers have deemed as valid, that accompany them to be used to elicit meaningful and much needed change. Collaboration is also central in deconstructing oppressive frameworks 
and self-education, as you mentioned, via, for example, seeking out people, for example, elders, Indigenous knowledge holders, community knowledge holders, to properly and effectively engage in, for example, indigenization frameworks, while, while of course, properly compensating these people for their time and knowledge is, is, is critical, of course. And I think coming from that, again, the most important thing is understanding that different people with different identities and therefore diverse realms of knowledge that they are drawing upon come with these knowledges and these knowledges need to be seen as important and valuable despite the fact that the colonial institution has deemed them as not valid and not, not useful. We're in a place where it often feels like there is more more challenges than successes with the state of the world and ourselves situated within. And I think COVID really brings, brings that out in, in a lot of situations. The things like, for example, understanding that stories in my context are fluid, adaptable, flexible, changing and, and flowing. In a, in a very admired scholar um, of mine, Joanne Archibald, in her 2008 book, Story Work Methodology, Educating the Heart, Mind, Body, and Spirit, she tells us that stories are a teacher and that we can and do live life through stories. They can also be used as a tool, as we've talked about, of decolonizing because a central component of decolonizing frameworks is educating, whether it be institutional, communal, or personal. A central component of stories as tools of language learning, for example, in my master's thesis, is that the methodological processes, for example, my conceptual framework, which I have named which means theater sister, or my methodology of story work, or my methods of the mentor apprentice program, as I talked about, and autoethnography are intended to be fluid and adaptable. So other second language learners may use these tools to engage in language learning in their own communities. Knowledge is meant to be shared and not hidden away for oneself. Thank you. I think that's such an important piece of advice and you've explained it so beautifully too. But um, we're unfortunately coming to the end of this interview. But as a question I like to end on yeah, now is what is something you'd like to see happen or see develop within higher education in the next 10 years? So as I just touched on, we are living in a time period where it feels like there can be more challenges than successes. And things like COVID, a global pandemic, the housing market, racism, discrimination, capitalism, hate attacks, hate-driven terrorism. A huge component of why this isn't being addressed is because it is hard to find the resources and people with the right and unique experiences to adequately address and design appropriate knowledge and learning sharing avenues so we, so we may begin to elicit meaningful change in which we seem to be lacking, especially in the higher education environments, colonial institutions. We, as humans, are often good at spotting the problem, but addressing the problem is what can be hard. I believe that the goals of creating programs and frameworks that are action-based, not just discussing the issues as institutions like to do, and that's that, keeping them open, accessible, 
and are directed towards creating actual change to benefit our communities in such a way that we can address areas such as oppressive frameworks could be a focal point in higher education in the next while. I believe that this is a big challenge that we are facing, shifting things more into an action-based mindset. We've identified the issues long enough, and COVID has made many of these issues very clear. For example, lack of resources, privilege, and oppressed identities. And it's now time that we really take action to more holistically address such topics that have been floundering for so long. Yeah, now I can't thank you enough for joining me on this episode of the podcast. You've shared some really insightful knowledge on your work and you've also been open to sharing your own really touching stories. And I look forward to seeing your research develop in language revitalization whilst incorporating queer theory. And hopefully we can see, like you said, more action-based programs develop in the next 10 years. Thank you again. Thank you. To find out more information, access our tools or get in touch, visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk slash PSJ.